0: We are in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I hope you're still there at least. This is part number 18, if you can believe it. We've gone through 18 different sermons as we've gone through these three books of the Bible. First and 2 Timothy and now Titus, And we have, uh, or Titus. And now we come to the very last chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul's final piece of writing. It is, of course, the last piece of scripture that he will ever write. Uh, And here I think that it will be uh, really relevant for us to look at this chapter in that light. We said at the beginning of this whole entire study as we were embarking upon studying the pastorals that uh, these letters are really Paul uh, sort of passing the baton, so to speak, from his own sort of uh, really tight grip, so to speak, on the apostolic ministry of the gospel and the early church, and he is now... Kind of handing that off to these younger guys, both Titus and Timothy. He's giving them all he ever uh, has learned and come to know through his uh, years in ministry and what he has come to understand about the ministry. Now he is, he is placing Timothy, he is giving him sort of this primary uh, position as the primary gospel voice, so to speak. And the reality of Paul's uh, soon or near death, it will be very explicit in this chapter throughout chapter 4. Of course, as he says in verse 6, he says, my time of departure is at hand. He knows that his time of death is near. Either he had a a date of execution that he was given, handed to him perhaps by uh, by a Roman governor, or perhaps it was just something that he felt within him. That he felt that his season, his time, his life was nearing an end. But regardless, the end was close. And he felt it. He knew it. And so this inspires uh, this entire book of Second Timothy. But also, I think, especially this last chapter. Which is some of the most solemn writing that Paul ever does. Some of the most personal, too. I like, would like you to think of this scene, though, as a scene that you are perhaps familiar with. Perhaps if you've experienced the death of a loved one uh, in your family. It's that scene of the loved one pulling you close and bringing you closer to give you one more thing that they have to say. I remember I was in the hospital room with my, um, my poppy, it was my dad's dad, and when she was, uh, his, his wife, when she was passing away back in 2000, uh, early 2009, uh, I just remember having that very exact moment. When she was, uh, went through this terrible ordeal and, and she was passing away, or was that time when we thought that we were going to lose her. And then as the Lord would have it, she was able to regain some of her lucidity and all over the family was able to come and, so, so to speak, have some last words with her. And I always remember that specific moment. And I think about that moment here. That Paul is bringing Timothy close. He's drawing him even closer than that. He's giving him some final parting words. One last word, so to speak. And such is what he kind of hints at at the beginning. Those very first few words of this chapter. In verse 1 where he says, I charge thee therefore before God. As it was in Pastor Nathan's translation, I solemnly charge you. The circumstances of what Paul was enduring made it for a really solemn moment, but also a very serious moment. And that word charge, as we've noted elsewhere, carries with it this idea of a military commander sort of passing on the dispatches for a new posting, for a new position, so to speak. He's giving Timothy new orders, and that's exactly what Paul is doing here. And I think he gives them these dispatches, these orders, in three different ways. I want to look at them tonight really quickly. So in verses 1 through 5, I think first of all we have a charge for stubborn proclamation. A charge for stubborn proclamation. Look at it again. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead... That is appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth. And shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. I think throughout these pastoral epistles, what is revealed, among many other things, of course, is Paul's sort of stubbornness in the way that he preached. The word that appears so often throughout each of these letters, including the one to Titus, is that phrase, sound doctrine. You can really hear it as if this is the whole thing that Paul had come to reduce. Well, maybe not perhaps reduce, but to condense his entire ministry into. That he is going to live, preach, profess, proclaim, and do everything he can for the sound doctrine of God. And such too is what he is uh, wanting Timothy to revolve his entire ministry around. And this is where we get that simple charge there in verse 2. Preach the word. The word there, that word, word, is a stand-in for the entire gospel of God. Preach all of this. Preach the sound doctrine. It encapsulates all of that good news that Jesus, the one who is, he says in verse 1, judges the living and the dead, is the same Savior who saves sinners. As we noted in the first letter in chapter 1, verse 15. You can hear it in Paul's voice. Preach that word, Timothy. Don't forsake that word. Preach it boldly. Preach it only. Preach it always. Preach this gospel and don't shy away from it. Don't, don't get turned away to any other thing, any other word, any other message. Preach this word. And this word only. This word, of course, the gospel, is the most urgent message which Timothy could relay. Such is where we get that phrase in verse 2 where he says, be instant in season and out of season. It has the idea in mind of be ready at a moment's notice. Always be alert. Be ready at all times to give the gospel, to preach the good news. This is an urgent message. And if we stop and just think about it. Is there anything that is more urgent than declaring the good news that King Jesus has come and died for sinners? That those same sinners who who rebelled against him might have eternal life with him? It's the most urgent message that we could ever announce. It's the most revolutionary uh, gospel that we could ever preach. It's the one that was entrusted to Timothy. And guess what? It's the one that is entrusted to you and me as well. Being instant in and out of season, so to speak. Being ready at all times to preach this word isn't necessarily just for preachers. It's for all of those who are in the church. That this is our mindset. This is our motive. This is our drive. That this word drives us. And who are we to let this news stop with us? Who are we to let the news, the urgency of the gospel message that Jesus has come to save sinners... Who are we to let that news stop on our ears? Such is why he's charging him to preach it, to proclaim it at all times. It's a pertinent message for Timothy. Because I I find it fascinating how he explains the context. Because look at verse 3 again where he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. Soon, Paul is saying, this sound doctrine of God is going to fall out of favor. There is going to be a a movement, so to speak, a wave in the church, where they'll no longer be satisfied with hearing about this message. It's going to fall out of favor. It's going to fall out of popularity. And you're going to be tempted, Timothy. You can hear it in Paul's words. You're going to be tempted to preach something else. You're going to be tempted to preach according to the whims of those to whom you are preaching to. And instead, these will not be satisfied with the word... Instead, they're going to look to just get things that they want to hear. That's what he means by having itching ears. They want to appoint preachers that are only going to tell them the things that they want to hear. That are only going to say the things that they want to hear. Instead of being pleased with the preacher preaching the truth, they will replace those preachers... With ones that, as it says in the King James, or uh, that itch their ears, or as it was in Pastor Nathan's translation, tickle their fancies. (laughs) It's really just saying that they're not going to speak the truth. It's only about pleasantries and platitudes. It's just things that make you feel good and feel nice. Things that don't really do anything for your soul. That might make you think better, but they don't make you actually have faith. I don't think there is any more relevant passage for today's church than these few verses. Because I think, uh, I like to listen to a lot of sermons. I like to listen to uh, and read a lot of uh, different, the, the way different churches operate and such. And you can see it elsewhere, all throughout this nation, all around the world actually. There are churches that are busting at the seams with attendance. And budgets. But the only thing that is ever evidenced in those churches is just a lot of people having their ears itched by a motivational speaker telling them what they want to hear. Telling them that they can think better or live better or have their best life now or as one preacher says that you can live every day like a Friday. Whatever that means. You can have that sort of good feeling as you come out of church. And I think nothing makes me sadder than that. The guy who wrote that, I won't name names, you can ask me afterwards. He has a congregation that houses twenty to 40,000 people. Nothing makes me sadder than seeing a preacher have that many people in the palm of his hand listening to him and that he leaves them with nothing. He leaves them with nothing in the way of eternal life. Nothing in the way of truth. That's what makes me sad. Because he gives them no words about Jesus. He gives them no words, as Paul says, that reprove or rebuke or exhort them with any sense of patience or doctrine. Instead, they're just given pleasantries and platitudes that they can build their life on. But those pleasantries and platitudes are like the the foolish man that Jesus talks about who builds his life upon the sand. Who is quickly washed away when the waves of storm and trial hit. Those sorts of things do not last. They are empty. They are fragile. I remember saying this when I first... Uh, came here last year, and I'll say it again, that this church isn't for you, or you can say this to someone else that you might know. This church will not be for them if they want to hear six steps for a better marriage or three tips on how to live your best life now. Because I'm, I'm not that type of preacher. And I pray to God that I will never be that type of preacher. Because the only thing that I ever want to be known for is that I preached The word, the whole counsel of God, that this good news, this good news of Jesus living and breathing and dying for sinners like me, wretched sinners like you and like me, is the only message I ever want to be known for. This gospel right here that Paul talks about at length, not just here in Timothy, but through Romans, throughout all of the scriptures, we can even go back to the Old Testament. This is the entire news that I ever want to be known for. Not for itching your ears, but for speaking to your souls. Yes, I, I want you to have a life that is free from suffering, but I can't promise you that or I can't give you six tips on how to make that go away. I can't give you any sort of secret formula to follow that can get rid of anxiety. But guess what I can point you to? I can point you to a savior who clings to you in your anxiety. I can give you a savior who is with you in your trial. Who is with you in your grief. Who is with you in seasons of death. I can give you that person because he's with you every single step of the way as he says in psalm 23 through the valley of the shadow of death he is with us this to me is i think what paul is intimating to timothy and it speaks to me greatly that this gospel of god the sound doctrine of of the fact that jesus christ came to the world to save sinners this is the only news that we need to hear I will be honest with you, it's probably not always the news that you want to hear. I'd rather learn a secret formula that can teach me how to live better and live every day like a Friday. But I don't know what that formula is. <laughs> I don't think the one exists. But this is the only news that we need to hear. There's never a moment, I think, when you and I do not need to hear that this, uh, this Jesus came into the world to save Sinners. And that even worse, you can never save yourself. But that even better, that this Savior has come to save those who cannot save themselves only by the power of His grace and that alone. I don't think there's ever a moment where we do not need to hear that. It's something that I think is always in season, if I may be so bold to say. And it's hard because we don't like hearing that we're powerless. Or that we're inadequate, or that we're ineffective, or that we're impotent at ever accomplishing this certain thing. Excuse me. We don't like hearing that news. And that's part of hearing the gospel. It's hearing that you are absolutely inadequate at this law that God commands you to keep. But guess what? Also, that's where the gospel comes in. Because there is one who is adequate in your place. And he stood in your place and was fulfilled all of the uh, the handwriting that was against you. He took it all away and he fulfilled every point of the law in your place. That's preaching. That's preaching the word. And I think this is what Paul is intimating to Timothy to preach. Preach this word. Don't shy away from it. Don't be afraid from proclaiming it. Even when you think that you're, not, or that, you're, or that you're the only one preaching it. Even when you think that it's fallen out of favor with all those around you. Preach this word. In season and out of season. And this is what he calls him to in verse 5. But watch thou in all things. Watch, be alert, be attentive, be calm and collected and cool and assertive in knowing that this message is true. And watch and be alert. Because there's afflictions all around you, Timothy. There's going to be an enemy that is ever watching to destroy you, to take you down, and to distract you. But this word, Timothy, this word is your lifeline. This word is your message, and it's your motivation, and by it you are able to endure, he says. This is the only message you are to proclaim, Paul, I think, is telling to Timothy. It's the only message that we have to proclaim, too. It's a charge for stubborn proclamation, but look at verses 6 through 8. We have Paul's charge for simple pursuit. He says, for I am now ready to be offered, verse 6, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. These are some of the most personal words I think that Paul ever penned. As he's writing here in this last chapter in 2 Timothy. And I think he's explaining this life of, I like to call it, simple pursuit. It's a life that you can read it. You can read Paul's words is certain of a righteousness that wasn't his own. You want to know what a life of simple pursuit looks like? It's one that is lived in the certainty, in the confidence that there's a righteousness that is not yours. And it's given to you by faith. And that's what keeps you. That's what sustains you. That's what motivates you, what pushes you, what holds you. What holds on to you even when you feel like giving up. And I think only in that reality could Paul write these words. Because look at what he says again. Look at verse 6. I am now ready to be offered. He's ready to die. Paul says here that I'm ready for death. Because why? He doesn't see his death as something that is fearful. He sees it as an offering to God. He sees it as himself giving himself as as he says in Romans chapter 12. As a living sacrifice. His life wasn't of value to himself or any sort of monetary gain or, or sort of personal acclaim. It was a life that was being lived for someone else. A life that was being lived for God himself. I go back to these words. Let me read them for you quickly. Acts chapter 20. This week I wrote down the right references. Acts chapter twenty verse twenty two. I've read these verses recently, but they appear to me to be so relevant, especially to this conversation here uh, in Acts chapter twenty. He is uh, about to leave. He's about to go uh, leave Ephesus, excuse me, and go back to Jerusalem after spending many years in this church ministering. Listen to what he says, verse twenty two. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. He's saying, I am bound by the Spirit. I am confident that Jerusalem is where I need to be and where I need to go, and I have no idea what's going to lie there for me, except that I'm probably going to suffer, and I'm probably going to be in chains. But I love what he says. In verse 24, but none of these things move me. I'm not shaken by them. I'm not afraid of them. I'm not scared of them. I'm not stirred by them. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry with which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. He's ready for death. Why? Because he knows that his life isn't the point. He, doesn't, he says, I don't count my life of any value except that I might finish my mission. That I might finish my course with joy, he says. He's ready for death. Also because he knows that death isn't the end. I love how he says there in verse 6 where he says, for I am now ready to be offered. I'm ready to be sacrificed. And he says, and the time of my departure is at hand. He's hinting again. I know that death is not the end. I'm going to be with Jesus. And a departure from here is actual presence with this king that I've been preaching about for so long. This king who met me on that Damascus road and redeemed me from my sins in the very point, in the very mission of actually committing sin. That this one I'm going to be in the presence of. That's what it means to depart this present life. He's ready for death. Look at verse 7 though, I think he's also ready for rest. Because he says, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. You can hear in Paul's words just how exhausted he is. You can sense that he has just been running and fighting and pursuing and pushing and ministering and having sleepless nights and being shipwrecked and being beaten and being spit upon and being thrown out of cities. Just a constant life of event after event that's pushing him to the brink of physical exhaustion. But also spiritual exhaustion. And he is fatigued. (laughs) And I think he's ready. He's like, God, I'm ready to just sit down. (laughs) To sit down and be at rest. He's ready, as he says elsewhere, for his faith to actually become sight. He's ready for that moment. When this keeping of the faith is no longer something that is on his charge to do. Because there will be no more reason for faith. Why? Because he can see that Jesus, that king who saved him face to face. And also think, as he says in verse 8, that he's ready for righteousness. Notice what he says, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them that also love his appearing. The righteousness that you and I have here and now is a righteousness of faith only. It's righteousness that we believe in, that we cling to based on the word, the word of God, the word of Jesus. We believe in that word, in that word which promises us a righteousness, a completeness, an enoughness that was accomplished for us, that was won on our behalf by someone else. We believe that. But guess what? The good news of this gospel also guarantees us that there's going to be a day when you will actually become righteous in and of yourself, your whole being. Is going to be made perfectly righteous. Not because of anything you did. But because of Jesus. He's going to make you perfectly holy. Complete. And enough. And, and righteous. This is that day of glorification that's talked about in Romans. And I think that's what Paul is hinting at here. He's Thinking of that day, when he's going to be crowned, when he's going to be adorned with a glorious righteousness that's not his, but is Jesus's. And it was given to him by faith. And now it is really his, because he's been washed in the blood of that lamb, Jesus Christ. Paul spent his life pursuing this. A life of simple pursuit, so to speak. And I think this is what he's getting Timothy to live for. A life not of applause, not of accolades, not of accomplishments, so to speak, or acclaim. It's a life spent pursuing one thing God's glory. I think that's really what I, you can encapsulate these three verses God's glory. This is what I want to pursue. Not me, not my acclaim, not my applause, not my uh, leveling up, not my accomplishments. God's glory. He's the glorious one, the good one, the gracious one, the great one. And I don't want anything to steal his spotlight. You can sense that in Paul here. Keep that faith, Timothy. Because this is all that matters. In the end, in the final analysis, this is all that matters. There's another thing, though, that jumped out to me as I was reading this passage and studying it. Is where he says in verse 7 that he has fought A good fight. It just hit me the fact that. This doesn't come easy for anyone. There's not one person you can name in scripture. That didn't resist his own nature. And have to constantly fight against his own nature. When he was claimed by faith. Faith is a battle. It is a war to believe in the things that God has said. And there's going to be voice after voice after voice that's going to tell you to disbelieve in what this word says and what this word gives you and what this word has promised you. And such is why he says, I have fought a good fight. Because constantly and constantly there is a war that is raging on the battlefield of your soul. And the only way that it is ever made to be victorious is if we live in light of God's glory. It's a life of simple pursuit. But lastly, let me look at the last half of this chapter. A charge for stubborn proclamation. A charge for simple pursuit. But lastly, in the last half, verses 9-22, through I think we see a charge for steady perseverance. Listen to what he says. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved for this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. Cretans to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. And have I sent unto Ephesus the cloak that I have left at Troas with Carpus. When thou comest, bring with thee. And the books, but especially the parchments. For me, the last half of this chapter is some of the most interesting pieces of writing that Paul has ever, uh, ever penned. That is ever included in scripture. Because he, he leaves almost this very pastoral charge that you can, you can hear it at almost every ordination service ever. And then he moves into this really practical, really pragmatic sort of writing that's specifically for Timothy, it appears at least, urging him to come for him, remarking about this cloak that he's left, this garment that he's left at the city and now he needs it. (laughs) Seems very strange to include in a letter of finality, a letter of words of parting. But I think in that pragmatism is a lot of hope. And hope that can speak to us. Because notice he urges Timothy to visit him. And he urges him twice. He says in verse 9. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. And look at verse 21. Do thy diligence to come before winter. He's obviously desirous. Greatly desirous of Timothy's presence. Perhaps it had been quite some time since they had seen each other. But I think what's most fascinating is not only that. But notice who he wants to come with him. Look at verse 11, where he says, Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Fascinating when you remember that this same Mark, John Mark, was actually the source of a great split between he and Barnabas back in the day. Of course, Barnabas and, and John Mark are closely related, by, or like distantly related. And so there was a little bit of nepotism, or at least probably Paul thought that. <laughs> And remember, Paul and Barnabas had a great schism. And they went their separate ways over what John Mark did as, as he fled away from the, one of their missionary journeys. And here, Paul realizes and recognizes and actually says out loud in Scripture that now this John Mark, he's become profitable to me in the ministry. The one who was immature, perhaps, who was also unprofitable at one point, is now very useful and vital to Paul. I think it goes to show that there's no one who can't be reclaimed to minister for Jesus. But I think he augments this request for the company of John, Mark, and Timothy by acknowledging those that had forsaken him. Look at verse 10 again. For, Demuth, or Demuth, for Demas, excuse me, hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica... Crescens unto Galatia and Titus unto Dalmatia. Interesting company of men here. Crescens we don't know anything about. He's only mentioned here uh, this one time in scripture. But I think it's, what's most fascinating is this link between Titus and Demas. Demas, of course, is a fellow laborer with Paul. He's mentioned in Colossians chapter 4 and also at the end of Philemon. Titus, of course, we know him. He was commissioned to preach the gospel in Crete. And if you look at the context of this verse, it would suggest that both of them forsook Paul. Both of them left where Paul had perhaps posted them. And they had departed. It isn't said what, whether Titus was likewise uh, enamored by the present world as it says it is about Demas. But if we read the verse again, look, for Demas... Hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed into Thessalonica, Titus unto Dalmatia. He's reporting about these guys that had left him, that had abandoned their post. It makes me wonder why. It makes me wonder what happened. It makes me wonder what had transpired that had made them become sort of disillusioned with the ministry or the faith. I don't think that they apostatized in any way. It doesn't, it, Paul doesn't say that they had made shipwreck of their faith like he does others. He says they had definitely left what they had been called to do, perhaps distracted for, for a season. And I think the words to Timothy ought to read loud and clear Don't abandon your post. Don't forsake what you have been called to do. Finish your course, Timothy. Finish your course with faith and persevere knowing that Jesus perseveres on your behalf. And this is what he's calling Timothy to. And he mentions two other instances of his own perseverance against this opposition. Notice he points out this instance with Alexander the coppersmith. Look at verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom be thou ware also... For he hath greatly withstood our words. He greatly harmed ministry. Perhaps it's the same Alexander that was mentioned in the first letter. It isn't really known whether it is or not. But he also reminds Timothy of the loneliness that he felt during his first trial. Look at verse 16. At my first answer, that is my first defense, my first trial, no man stood with me. But all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. He reminds Timothy that get used to being alone sometimes. Because when you're in the ministry, you have to persevere and stand even when no one else does. And I did that. I did that in my first answer, Paul says. And why could he make such a claim? Well, if you look at this last half, there's two really amazing things that jump out to me. First of all is the fact that if you look at it again... Paul wasn't truly alone. Because look, if you look at verse 11, he says that Luke was still with him. Luke, that faithful companion, that doctor and physician who, yes, wrote our gospel of Luke, was with him all throughout Acts. He wrote Acts 2. And he was with him through uh, almost all of the journeys which Paul took. He saw all the suffering and the heartache. And here at the very end, Luke is still there. Luke is still with him. But look also at verse 19. Look at all the names that Paul mentions. Salute Prisca and Aquila. And the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus abode at Corinth. But Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Eubulus greeteth thee and Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. It's a plethora of names. It's a a who's who of all these people that are serving in these different locations. And I think it goes to show that Paul wasn't truly alone. That even though he felt alone, that there was a lot of people still working and ministering for the sake of the faith. But also too, look at verses 17 and 18. Because this to me is where the true encouragement lies. Because notice what he says. He says, or verse 16, at my first answer, no man stood with me. But all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be late to their charge. Verse 17, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He wasn't truly alone. Nor was he ever really alone. Why? Because the Lord was with him. There was comrades and colleagues that he was familiar with. Co-laborers, as Paul's favorite word is, throughout his epistles in the gospel that forsook him, that departed, that left here and there and yon. And who was always with him? The Lord Jesus Christ. He was with me even when no one else was. He was with me and he was delivering me and preserving me and persevering for me and standing for me and strengthening me. And he says even now as he nears the end, what does he say? The Lord shall deliver me. He will Whether it be he delivers me out of this dungeon and into life and ministry again. Or he delivers me out of it into eternal life with him. Either way, I'm going to be delivered. The hand of these Roman uh, tyrannical rulers will not win. The Lord will deliver me. He will take me and deliver me out of the mouth of a lion, he says. This is God's persistent promise for you and for me too. That he stands with us and for us in every moment and season of our life. That he is the friend that sticks closer than a brother as it says in Proverbs 18. That he is the savior who never leaves or forsakes us as it says in Hebrews 13. And this was Paul's comfort. It was the promise of a Savior and a friend who would never leave him. Who would never forsake him. And look at, this is what he gives to Timothy at the very end. Notice verse 22. The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. The heart of the words is this same Lord, he's going to be with you too. The same grace that has sustained me through countless afflictions and persecutions and beatings is going to be with you too. It's going to be with you every single moment of every single day of every single year for the rest of your life. And this is what we are able to proclaim too. We are able to pursue this life. Why? Because Jesus perseveres for us. And Jesus pursues after us. And Jesus proclaims a righteousness that is not ours. And he gives it to us. This is that faithful friend. This is that faithful savior who never leaves our side. The good shepherd who never leaves his sheep. We may wander, we may stray, we may stray very far away. Jesus never leaves our side. We can pursue and persist in the life of faith. Why? Because Jesus persists for us. That's what we bank on. That's what we rely on. I think this is what Paul was relying on, and I pray tonight that that's what you rely on too. That in these final dispatches from the front lines of ministry, so to speak, it all boils down to what? That you have a Savior who will never leave you nor forsake you. There's no better promise than that, I think. Let us pray.